Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 35,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been living with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh. feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hello and welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host today, Maya Linnell, and it's great to have your company for today's episode. If you like hearing about books and writing and you enjoy finding out what goes on behind the scenes in the publishing world, then you're in the right place. So pull up a pew as we've got an amazing interview ahead today. Now, there is a very high chance that you've not only heard of our guest, Jane Caro, but you've probably listened to her on radio watched her on television, read her articles in the national newspapers, bumped into her at a corporate event, or perhaps followed her on Twitter. Welcome to the Words and Nerds Mm -hmm. podcast, Jane. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. Now, Jane has published over 12 books. She's presented five documentary series for ABC Compass. She's also a member of the Order of Australia, a feminist icon, a Walkley Award-winning Australian columnist, and she's even done a TED Talk. Now, I'm just skimming through the surface of your chock-a-block CV, Jane, but we can also now add thriller author to the list. Congratulations on your new release, The Mother. Thank you very much. Yes, at the moment, that's the one I'm proudest of. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jane, I'm based in southwest Victoria and I'm sitting in my office overlooking our paddocks. Can you paint a picture for us of where you're talking to us from today? Yes, I'm actually in the Upper Hunter. We have a cattle farm up here. In fact, um, if you read The Mother, you'll see that quite a bit of it is uh, set in the Upper Hunter in a little town called Dungog, which is the nearest town to here. It's a good 55 minutes drive away, but we're really in the boondocks. Uh, So I'm overlooking paddocks and dams and um, a, a river, a beautiful Allen River, uh, which runs straight out of the Barrington Tops National Park. So, yes, it's a really nice place to be doing a podcast from. Oh, lovely. It sounds like a beautiful part of the world as well. It is. It is quite spectacular. It's right on the edge of a temperate rainforest. So quite unusual for Australia. And the bird life is amazing. Oh, brilliant. Well, hopefully we can hear some in the background to uh, provide the soundtrack to the conversation. Uh, now, Jane, your novel, The Mother, was an absolutely gripping read. It's got a really powerful plot. It's got a moral dilemma that made it really hard to put down. Now, can you give us a bit of a rundown of the story, please? Sure. Um, basically, it's about a North Shore real estate agent called Miriam Duffy, who is very happy with her life. It's She's very successful. She's got a nice little business that she runs herself. She's happily married to a lovely man. She's got two lovely daughters. One is married and has a little girl. The other one's a bit more of a troublesome relationship. Miriam's often nervous around her. She doesn't quite know how to have the same rapport. But, you know, she really loves her, both her daughters. And it's a minor, it's a minor issue. And she keeps trying. And sometimes she thinks she's makes a hash of it, but she keeps trying to have a closer relationship. She's not willing to give in and give up. 
And then out of the blue, her much-loved husband, Pete, has a uh, major aneurysm and literally drops dead um, at work. And so she finds her world turned upside down and she is suddenly widowed. Just before this happens, her difficult youngest daughter, she thinks has come good because she's met the man of her dreams, this absolutely gorgeous-looking, successful um, vet uh, who is, you know, charming with a beautiful smile. In fact, his smile reminds her all the time of her husband's. Um, and he sweeps her youngest daughter off her feet and literally sweeps her off to this little country town in Dungog where he works as a vet for the local vet practice. So it's completely understandable as to why they would have to go there. Miriam, caught in the sort of absolute devastation of her grief, nevertheless still tries to stay connected to her daughter but finds it really hard to keep the relationship going even harder than before and very very slowly and gradually her daughter Alison gets pregnant all of a sudden unplanned pregnancy and has a little boy this is thrilling of course to Miriam a second grandchild just what she wanted her only regret is that Pete's not there to see this little boy and um then she finds that makes it even harder for her to see or stay in contact with her daughter, who is always busy, seems to have postnatal depression. In fact, her husband, Nick, starts to call Miriam and say, I'm really concerned about her mental health. She's not coping very well. And Miriam gets very concerned, remembering times in Alison's youth where she also had, you know, real difficulties coping. And so she becomes convinced that her daughter is going through a crisis. Then her daughter gets pregnant again which shocks Miriam to the core you know what what you've only just got one you can't hardly cope with that now you're having another one and so it goes on and she does get to go up and visit Alison a few times by dint of pushing and she's she doesn't know what's going on it's all strange it doesn't feel right to her and she does start to think my daughter I, I'm my daughter must have serious issues and then she starts to blame herself I brought her up. Obviously, I've predisposed her to be unstable and she takes the guilt on her own shoulders. But then, out of the blue, Alison and the two children, Isla, the little girl, is just really a newborn, arrive on her doorstep in leafy Greenwich and her life turns completely upside down yet again. And the things she finds out and the things that in the end she finds herself contemplating actually having to do are things that this woman never in her wildest dreams imagined. I think that's a really great wrap up and such an intriguing premise as well. I think, um, you know, as soon as I saw the cover, I got those chills thinking, oh, we've got a thrilling read ahead here. Um, and I think Miriam, your main character, generally she, um, from the blurb, from the description of the real estate agent, you know, contented grandma, works really hard to do what she can for her children. She just came across as an everyday mum slash grandma slash um, business owner. But I loved how ominously in that first chapter you opened up with a very unusual situation for Miriam to be in. Is it too much of a spoiler for us to say exactly where she is in that first opening chapter or do you think we should leave people to, uh, to wonder? Oh, no, I'm happy to say. Miriam, in the very beginning, the prologue, um, finds herself um, in a gun shop in Wollongong, a town she's never been to and a kind of shop she never dreamt she would ever enter. And there she is. 
And what a cracking start. So you've set it up right, right from the get-go with that high tension. And we know we're in for a wild ride. Jane, can you tell us, was that always your intention to be the opening scene? Or was that something that you wrote later and went, oh, that will grab people right up front and then put it towards the front? Look, I have to give absolute credit to my fabulous um, editor, Alva from um, Alan and Unwin, who actually uh, said to me, I think you need to do a little prologue and, um, you know, make it really dramatic and blah, blah, blah. And so that's what I wrote um, and put it right up front. And she was absolutely spot on right. This is the great thing about editors. They read your draft and they go, ah, yes, this is what it needs and you're too close to it. It's really hard once you've written the whole bloody thing um, sometimes to see, you know, I used to find it when I was in advertising um, and people would put a whole lot of work into an idea and I'd say, oh, that's really good. Why don't you just do this and this? And they go, oh, why don't we think of that? That's You're really clever. And I go, no, I'm not. You've done all the work but you're so absorbed in it that you can't see that you just put that cherry on top. It's perfect. That's the job of someone from outside to see what you can't see because you're so close to it. You've done the work. You've done the create creative part of it. Um, it's much easier for an outsider to see just the last little bit. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I love editors for that. And I feel like that is such a particular skill set to have to be able to read through the manuscript and see those little gems and just polish them until they absolutely shine. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, it is. I don't think I could do it. I have um, enormous respect for editors and um, they've been an absolute godsend with every book I've ever written. Wonderful. Now, what brought you to writing this particular topic and fiction in general, Jane? Because you've got a wonderful background. As I said, we've only skimmed over the top of the amazing things that you've been involved in. Um, what, what drew you towards this subject and fiction as a whole? Well, I always had an ambition to write fiction. And in fact, I wrote, um, I've written three young adult, uh, a trilogy of young adult fiction of Elizabeth I. Uh, just a Girl, Just a Queen and Just Flesh and Blood. And um, so I was sort of doing YA and then it was basically after one of those absolutely horrendous incidents that happen um, every now and again, uh, well, far too often actually, not every now and again, far too regularly, where a, a woman and her children were killed by um, the father and partner. And I, I saw a photograph of the woman involved with an older woman, um, not the woman's mother, I'd say probably her grandmother or something. And the woman's face was pixelated out, but I was looking at her and I'm a grandmother, I've got two grandchildren. And I looked at this and I thought, God, how must that poor woman feel? I thought, how would I feel if my daughter, thank God she isn't, um, is mar was married to someone who I you know, feared could do something like that to her and my precious grandchildren what would I what would I do in that situation and then I thought well I know what I'd like to do um and then the idea kind of dropped into my head almost fully formed and it, it I knew it was an adult book and I, I I I had a kind of compulsion to write it like I think it happens to a lot of um fiction writers it's not the kind of well thought out, oh, yes, this is a subject that I'd like to explore in more detail that you do with nonfiction. It's much more instinctive and kind of gut level and you just get this compulsion, I need to write this story and I need to create these characters. And they sort of arrived 
in my head again or, my, or off the end of my fingers um, as themselves. So some of them have names that are the same name as people in my life, not children or anything like that, but friends and whatever. And I've had to be at pains to say, look, it's not you. It's not even remotely you. This character arrived with that name and they insisted on having that name and there was nothing. I tried them with another name and it didn't work. So um, it's quite interesting how it just takes you over and you sort of, I mean, I've, I, you almost feel like you're channeling something as you write um, the book. So that's what it was like. It just, it just insisted on being written. Well, I think that is a really wonderful way to go about it because I feel like that's where the magic happens when you're at that keyboard and your fingers can't quite keep up with what's coming out. And then you think, I don't even know who's writing this, but it's coming out of me and it's on the page and you're not sure what's going to happen. That's exactly right. And sometimes people who are trying to write or have an ambition to write will say to me, you know, how do you do it? How do you go about it? And I say, well, you write a sentence. And then you think, oh, well, the next sentence has to be, and then you write that sentence, and then you think, oh, well, now it has to be, and so it goes, and so it goes, and you just start, and somewhere it all comes out. And what I find is so interesting about this stage after the novel's finished and as it starts to get publicity and I go around and talk about it and talk about it with people like you and all sorts of people is that readers almost reveal the novel to me. They reveal what it's really about, what the all the layers that are there that I've just put down on the page without even consciously knowing that I have. And that's so exciting. And that's why I always think that a really good book is never a monologue. It's always a dialogue between the author and the audience. And the audience brings as much to it as the author does. That's a really great perspective, Jane. I like that. And it's a dialogue, not a monologue. That's lovely. Because the reader has to... I often think the, the analogy I use is my daughters are now in their 30s, so they read the Harry Potter books before there was any movies. So they had to cast all the characters. They had to design Hogwarts. They had to create Quidditch games in their head. Now every single child who reads the books casts Daniel Radcliffe and, you know, Emily Watson and Maggie Smith and it's great and everything, but there's a loss when that happens because Every single person who read Harry Potter before the movie created a different Harry Potter. They certainly did. Now, Jane, your research for this book took you to some very dark places on issues mm -hmm. that are so important but must have been very harrowing to research. Now, I know I was really shocked by some of the intimidation and manipulation tactics but at the same time, they were so chillingly familiar because we are, we are hearing these awful stories about women and children being injured at the hands of people they think they love and they think they're safe with. Um, what was it like putting yourself through the research um, and writing that and having that in your head for every day that you're, you're putting this book together? Yeah, it was, it was hard. And it was, um, I, I was quite nervous about getting it right. I felt a real obligation to be as accurate and realistic as I possibly could be. I got a lot of really good help from um, Annabelle Daniel, who is the CEO of Women's Community Shelters and works in this um, space all the time. And my hat, I take my hat off to people who work in this space because, whoa, it's so tough just to write about it. It's tough. Imagine spending every day working in it. And 
she was really helpful. She gave me a judgment that a judge had handed down um, in a notorious murder court case and said, this is the best description of coercive control you're ever going to see. And that was really helpful. And it gave me some courage because sometimes I worried that I was jumping the shark. You know, had I pushed it too far? Was this ridiculous? Because it does, you know, the stuff that, that happens, you think, no, nobody could do that. that that's not possible. And um, that uh, now I know, oh, no, they could and they do. Um, and indeed, I, I uh, reached out to an old school friend of mine who's now one of um, Australia's top family lawyers. So he's worked in that area ever since we left Macquarie Uni and back in the 70s. And I said to him, you know, I'm worrying. This is I briefly described some of the things and said, you know, and he, you know, have I gone too far? And he said, oh, Jane, you've just summarised half the files on my desk. And I thought, oh, I, in a way, of course I was relieved. Oh, good, I'm not, you know, from a purely novelist selfish point of view but from a human point of view I just thought oh my god this is so awful that loving relationships could become so toxic but at the same time when we turned our faces away from this reality when we pretended it didn't happen women and children were more vulnerable than when we shine a light on it and when we actually talk about it and understand that when we say, well, why didn't she just leave? Why she didn't just leave? And I think that's one of the things that actually fiction is possibly better at communicating than non-fiction because non-fiction can give you the facts and the figures and, yes, it can still be very emotional and it can still be very moving, but there's nothing quite like a narrative where you get emotionally engaged with the characters and the story to open your heart and therefore open your mind and get you to get out of judgment, which after all you are using quite a lot when you read nonfiction, and into compassion, which you're generally into when you're reading good fiction. If you find yourself judging a book, you're not enjoying it, it's probably not for you. If you find yourself just being carried along on this emotional roller coaster, you're in compassion, you're in empathy, and you're really on that journey, and that's why you're loving it, and that's why when you finish, you go, oh, wow, I really love that book. And so that's one of the reasons I thought this was a subject that ought to be tackled in fiction. And um, although I was terrified and didn't feel at all qualified, I decided that I had to take that risk. And... I'm really glad that I did um, and I feel that's why I made Miriam once removed from what's going on because I haven't lived this experience. So I wanted her to channel us, the, the, the onlooker, the person who sees it, gets caught up in it and doesn't know what to do because that's most of us. Um, and so I wanted, I felt that that was an experience I understood well. Yeah, oh, I, I thought you did a really good job of exploring those relationships throughout the story and that tension of, you know, am I pushing too hard? Am I, am I pandering to her to make her that way? Am, am I interfering? I better step back. I thought that was a really good um, pull throughout the story where, you know, Miriam does want to be involved. She does want to be helpful, but she doesn't want to exacerbate things. Um, and, you know, of course, there's times where she does step in I'm sure you'll be asked this so many times in the promotional period of this novel. Would you make that choice that Miriam made? 
I don't think I'd have the guts, to be honest with you. Um, and I'm also, uh, as the author, just as is my character, utterly ambivalent about whether or not it was the right thing to do. Miriam says consistently, I did the wrong thing, a terribly wrong thing, but I did it for the right reasons. And, you know, I do have empathy for sinners. I do, I mean, I didn't get into Nick and what made Nick the way he is, though I hint at it a little bit, partly because I thought it would take the whole focus of the novel from where I wanted it to be. But I still feel for the little boy he must have been once. So I do get a little bit into that with Miriam looking at her grandson and thinking about why did Nick turn, why did he become like this when he must have been this lovely, kind, sweet, loving little boy once too? You know, what happened to make him be who he has become? So I want us to sort of be able to at least for moments be able to empathise um, with everyone. I think that's part of the job of a novelist and it's a... I don't know. I, look, I can't answer that actually because I've never been in that situation. And if my daughters, either of them, and my grandchildren were threatened in the way that Miriam finds hers, maybe I would. Who knows? That's mm. the dilemma. But I do fundamentally agree with the judge who sums up and says much as we might sympathise with, with the situation of the um, uh, accused uh, the offender, rather, um, he hasn't had a chance to tell his story. We haven't heard his side of things. And everyone should have the right to tell their story. And so it, I think this is one of those things where there is no yes or no answer. There is no right or wrong. Mm, which I think is what makes it such a great talking point for everyone who picks up the book and then sits around their book club and discusses it. I think there's going to be a lot of conversations um, about that issue. I think exactly what was intended. So I think mm. well done on that. Yeah, I wanted people to actually look at it. And I particularly wanted people who say, who are dismissive and, you know, well, you should have called the police sooner or you should have done this or you should have done that, all the shoulders, to actually mm. see why people get trapped in horrible situations and all the shooting in the world doesn't help. And that I, I, I deliberately made Miriam, Alison and Fiona and Pete, of course, for the short time that he's there, a very middle-class, well-resourced, well-educated family because I wanted to also point out that it can happen to anyone, that it's not about someone who has, is a deficit, has a deficit in some way. It is highly skilled manipulation, which our society grooms women to confuse with romantic love. Do you know, Jane, I had a really interesting time. The, the book that I picked up after I finished your novel, The Mother, was a rom-com and a very well-received popular rom-com, and it had an enemies-to-lovers trope. So, you know, the concept of the novel was they hated each other with a passion. They would work to um, agitate the other one. And I think it was because I'd just finished reading your novel, but there were some instances in there that really didn't sit well with me 
in the terms of, no, that's actually coercion. That is not a nice, healthy thing to do in a relationship to make someone feel like that, even though, you know, this is a game to them. And it, so that was quite interesting. But uh, possibly if I had picked up them in the, wrong, the reverse order, yeah, all- I might not thought about it. Um, but very interesting. I hadn't uh, considered that enemies lovers trope in that way before. It's a, it's, I worry about it very much because I think it, it's the same idea as we used to get told when, certainly when I was a little girl, if a boy picked on you or was mean to you or teased you, you'd be told he likes you. What? Mm. Don't tell girls that. That makes us think that the more someone upsets us, the more they like us. So we start to get addicted to feeling terrible because that means we're loved. Mm, that's a really bad idea. Um, I remember reading um, a self-help book a million years ago by an an American author called M. Scott Peck. And um, I don't remember much about the book. I think it was called The Road Less Travelled. But um, one thing really stuck in my head, and that was where he said that love was an action. It's not a feeling. And he said that people can feel love. Well, that just makes them feel good. But unless they act in a loving way, then that love is useless. And actually, I think that explained a lot about coercive control because basically it's often people who may feel overwhelming, almost panic-stricken love for the object of their affection. They often swear up and down that they love these people more than life itself, certainly more than their life anyway. Um, But in fact, they don't act in a loving way. So that loving feeling is self-indulgent narcissistic and actually dangerous women have to give up thinking that love is the be all and end all of life and the whole purpose of it which is what we were taught all the stories we were told as children everything was about that actually respect is what you're after and you can't actually have true love without respect and in the relationship between Pete and Miriam, even, even though it's only seen for a short time, but Miriam does go back to it and think about it quite a lot throughout the novel. I'm trying to show a healthy, not, you know, wishy-washy, stupid, unrealistic, but a healthy and relatively respectful relationship between a man and a woman. Um, and, yes, there's quirks and he's a bit controlling and fussy and, you know, all of that, and she might be a bit too dependent and there's that sort of thing, but... They respect each other. They're friends. And that I think um, as I'm older, and I've been married for 46 years now, is the thing that you want. And the romantic novel really, really worries me, unless it's Jane Austen, where she has to pull the romantic hero down to the heroine. You know, she sort of, she undercuts him. She destroys the romantic hero model um, very gently and subtly with her wit but they all turn out to just be ordinary human beings, actually. And I'm here to tell you, after 46 years and after watching lots of my friends, um, the best you'll ever get is a man. The best you'll ever get is a woman. And they're all flawed and imperfect. And, you know, don't worry about settling. That's all you're ever going to (laughs) do. There ain't no princess out there. Not one. (laughs) Look at Andrew. <laughs> now, without giving too much away, Jane, I want to thank you for the ending of the book. As a reader, it was very satisfying. 
Now, as a writer, did you always have that ending in mind or was it, you know, flipping on a dime, how do I pull this off without giving away what the ending is? Um, I always had that, yes, that ending in mind, but it was written a bit differently at first. I got carried away with the kind of witty joke that I thought of and had that at the end and my um, editor, as I'm sure she has to do with a lot of writers, said, yes, very good, no. Uh, <laughs> Don't do that. And she was quite right. But, yes, that the ending um, was always, uh, yeah, I wanted that kind of resolution because I had, I mean, I suppose maybe this is true of all novels when you write characters, even if they're prickly and difficult, even if they do terrible things, um, you have real affection for them. You know, you want them to come through in some way. Um, so, yeah, that was, it, it always seemed the, the right end to me. And so that's where it ended. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, Jane, one of the things that my, um, my ears pricked up, which obviously you can't really do very well when you're reading a book, but my spidey senses tingled when you mentioned postpartum psychosis. Now, as someone who has been through postpartum psychosis, and it's a very rare illness, one in a thousand mums will go through this very dramatic illness, You've mentioned it. Is there a particular reason that you put that in or is that something you've had experience with? No, but I used to have when I was young and I was um, suffering with a really intense anxiety disorder. Um, I've overcome it completely now. In fact, some people could say I've overcorrected. Um, but when I was in the grip of it, I feared madness. So, and the weird thing was I feared it and yet I was attracted to it. So I would read anything that came and it would trigger me hideously, but I was like obsessed, you know, anxiety is like that. You, you, you are stuffing yourself up the whole time. And um, so I'd read about it and it had horrified me when I was pregnant with my own um, daughter, particularly the first time around that that would be something I suffered from. In the book, I give Miriam at the beginning a fear of um, Alzheimer's. And um, so it was a similar sort of thing. And I, so I was aware it existed. I'd read a little bit about it and I knew that it would be for anyone as they're being manipulated into believing that their previously highly strung but very effective daughter was slipping into some sort of mental health crisis that particularly after the very soon after the birth of a first child, you could easily start to worry that this would go. And we do tend to jump to the worst possible scenario when we're anxious. We don't think about, oh, she's going to be sad for a little while or whatever. We go, oh, my God, like it's, you know, you get a, you get a wart on your leg and you think it's cancer. It's that. And so, and it also played right into Nick's hands for her to worry about that. And, of course, he's a vet, not a doctor. But nevertheless, he is a medical practitioner. He does have an understanding of that kind of thing. So he, he doesn't really mention it, but he nor does he ever try to put her mind at rest. In fact, rather the opposite. I think that was well played and it's such a such a um, unheard of illness. I thought it was great to have that in there because perhaps it might get someone Googling, well, what is that? And, you know, then they can start to look for signs and, and spread awareness. So I think that was that was really nicely put in there. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm glad getting... that. Mm. Oh, sorry. 
Whereabouts uh, your writing routine? Does it mostly take part in that beautiful place in Dungog where you're speaking to us from at the moment or do you have a, an office that you go to to write, Jane? Well, like a lot of women who've had children and now have grandchildren, I would say my writing routine is a thing of fantasy rather than reality. So um, I write when I get the chance. I write when I have a moment. I write on the kitchen table. I write on my office in my house. I work from home or up here. And, of course, COVID, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. And COVID lockdowns really helped me out with this novel because we came to the farm. Obviously, we've got... 60 70 head of cattle we can't just leave them for four months or how have along so we came up here and stayed up here for the duration and there's nowhere to go can't even get takeaway food I'm so sick of the taste of my own cooking I could throw up I can tell you but I had endless time to actually knock this novel into shape and I have to say I think it shows I think um, you can see that having that concentrated time to write does actually um, affect the quality of the product um and so it was a golden writing time for me and uh, it really it really helped the lockdown pass <laughs> um quite pleasantly <laughs> as well because I was feeling productive and engaged and and thank goodness for technology like this where I could research anything I needed to um without having to go to a library or you know all the things that novelists to my great admiration, had to do once. <laughs> well, that's perfect then. Um, I know that you mentor young people in a business capacity, Jane, and you're involved in different boards and, and things like that. Now, when I mentioned on my writing group, which is via Zoom as well, very handy, uh, this morning that I was speaking with the wonderful Jane Caro, one of the things that they said, oh, make sure you ask Jane, What's her perspective on getting paid to go to events? Because I know you do a lot of wonderful corporate speaking, um, slightly different, but when authors are invited to go to luncheons, um, conferences, events, and it's for the love of it or the ability to have a table with your books for sale as opposed to actually paid work, I know I'm not the only one who finds it tricky to say, well, actually, I've got to take a day out of my writing routine to, you know, drive to the event and, and then present on stage. How do you go about it? What's your advice for people like me and my writing group who do find it tricky to say, well, that'll be this much, thanks very much? Women should be paid for their work. Women should be paid for their work. I am sick and tired of women being asked to do things for love, whether it's stay with a coercive controlling man uh, or just a, your average common garden variety dickhead. Um, or, or take time out of what could be paid work. Because if you agree to go, like I'm a freelancer, basically, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it's job by job by job. And if I agree to go and talk at someone's lunch or whatever it is that I'm doing, and then a paid job comes in that day, I have to pass it up because I've, I've committed. Somebody's, you know, organised an event, booked a venue, gone to the trouble of putting any, I can't just say, oh, sorry, someone's going to pay me for that time. Um, and I don't mind, even if I'm only being paid an honorarium, because I do understand that, you know, a lot of these groups don't have heaps of money. And, yes, it's, you are trying to sell your book. Of course you are. But as you would know, Maya, you get your advance and then, you know, you hope like hell you actually pay your advance off and then, then you might actually get some more money. But if you don't pay your advance off, that's it. That's all you get. You don't get another thing. So it 
unless you are going to be J.K. Rowling or Michael Robotham or somebody like that, you don't make money out of writing books. You do it because you really want to. So I think you have to look at it as you are taking time out of possible paid work time to do this and therefore some sort of compensation is just fair and reasonable. Now, if it's a fundraiser for a really good cause, obviously um, I will make a decision about donating my time. But I will make a decision about donating my time. I can't donate my time to every cause that asks me to go and do something for nothing because all that would do is beggar me and exhaust me, neither of which are useful to anyone and certainly not me. So I, I think women have to stop apologising and feeling guilty because we can't go around and make everybody feel good and save the whole world. We can't. And Accidental Feminist, the book that I wrote before I wrote this one, which is about women of my generation, women over 55, who are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless. This is about the very, very real risk that women, middle-class women, Miriam Duffy included, though she owns her own house, that probably would protect her, but very, very real risk they face of poverty in their old age. And part of that is because we put our duty to be carers for small children, elderly parents, anyone with a disability or an illness, or doing charity work or, you know, whatever it was, ahead of our right to earn an income. And so we haven't amassed the kind of money we need to look after ourselves in our old age. Um, and, you know, my generation were told that a man had take care of it for us. <laughs> That's never happened in the history of human guns, but um, we realised it. So, no, ask for it. And I was given a very good code for um, asking many, many years ago by Sandra Yates, who at that time was the chair of the advertising agency I was working for. Sachin Sachin. She said, are you getting paid for this speaking you're doing? She has a very blunt manner. And I said, oh, you know, I find it really hard to ask. And she said, you say this. You say, oh, and do you have a budget for speakers? And then they have to say, well, we haven't got a big budget or whatever they say. And if they say to you as occasionally they say to me, oh, it'll be good for your profile, I say I've got enough profile. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be paid for my work. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Jane. That'll be going. Good. Sorry. That'll go straight back to the writers' group. I mean, I'm sure they'll be tuning in on the episode, of course, anyway. But uh, <laughs> for anyone who misses it, they'll, they'll get the full Jane Caro explanation. Thank you. Thank <laughs> <Same> you. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, in terms of writing resources, do you have any podcasts or writing courses or craft books that you recommend to other people that are writing, Jane? No. Um, I just think, I mean, I spent 35 years as an advertising copywriter and that turned out to be a hugely beneficial training because you learn to weigh every word because every word is worth money. So space or time is what adds pay for so you have to be really pithy and economical so there's no and and you have to get right to the nub of what it is you're trying to do really really fast you can't dig around so I was lucky I got kind of that training and one of my early creative directors was Derek Hansen who's now also a novelist and he was very strict 
taskmaster about how to write and how to structure. He told me this, taught me how to structure um, a piece of copy or an article or whatever. And I think in a way I'm a believer, and this is probably my age showing, you can only learn by doing it. Now, some people learn very well listening to a podcast with some advice or, you know, and that's great. But it's not how I learn. I, I learn by sitting down and doing it. And, um, it, you know, I, I have to struggle like anyone else and I overwrite and I um, have bad habits with repeating the same words over and over again. And, you know, I, I make all the rookie errors. Um, but that's fine. I don't mind that. I think, yeah, I think you just do it. And you stop trying to do it well. You just do it. Because I think that sometimes... Again, I think women suffer from this perhaps a little more than men do. We become our own self-censor, our self-critics. So we're so critical of our own abilities and our own, you know, and it doesn't match up to what we're aspiring to. I see my grandson do it when he wants to draw a picture. It's actually a beautiful drawer. He's not yet six. But he, um, he hates it because they don't look like the idea he had in his head. Well, that's a creative person right there. That's our always the dilemma doesn't look like the idea we had now you have to get let go of that idea that idea was a fantasy now what you've got in front of you is the reality of what you've been able to make of that and that's fine and it doesn't have to be perfect and you don't have to be a prize winner and you don't have to be the most you don't have to be another Charles Dickens or Jane Austen you can just be yourself and write what you want to write once you let go of expectations once you let go of the idea of what you ought to be or who you should, the shoulds again, once you've let go of those, it frees you up and you do a lot better. Um, so I just, yeah, my way of doing it is just get an idea and usually somebody like my literary agent says, right, I need eight chapters by, in, you know, a month's time. And I think, oh, shit, okay, well, I better write them then. Deadlines motivate me like nothing else. So, um <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't read books on writing. I don't listen to people talking about writing much. Um, I like reviews. I like listening to people discussing books and going to discussions about books. But no, I, I'm 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 instinctive about it. Beautiful. And what about reading? What have you been reading recently that you could recommend? Well, I'm right in the middle of Deborah Oswald's book, actually, not a million miles away from mine, called. Um, the Family Doctor, um, and I'm partly reading that because we're doing some events together and I thought, right, I need to read Deborah's book, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's uh, it's very different from mine and yet I think it kind of sprung from the same perhaps, um, creative place. Um, so that's, that's been a real pleasure. But I'm a real, um, I absolutely am obsessed with history. I love um, historical novels and historical biography and uh, I'm a complete amateur, but I, I'm really interested. And I also have an English literature degree. And when I say English literature, I mean British literature. And I was born in Britain and my parents are British. So that's kind of my culture, I suppose. And so I found a book at Watermark at Sydney Airport when I was going to Melbourne a few weeks ago called The Mystery of Charles Dickens. Oh, I loved every minute of it. I read it in two days because... It's by A.N. Wilson, and it's a really, it's almost a psychoanalysis of Charles Dickens from the, all the things we know about him, how he treated his wife, you know, how, how he was brought up, how much he hated his mother, 
somewhat unfairly, I thought, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, there is a novel in Elizabeth Dickens. Oh, my God, there is a novel in Elizabeth Dickens. She was 16 when she married ne'er-do-well John Dickens. And there's a lovely description of her being this pretty young thing who loved to dance on tables and sing songs and was really full of joy. And by the time she was 17 and had Charles, I think she had three children. She went on to have another 10, eight or 10, one or two of whom died in infancy. And I just think about that life. And he hated her. He hated mm. her with a passion. And I think it's because she, I can understand it, she was worn out by the time he came along and she just couldn't love him. You know, they were just children she kept churning out. She lost all her joy and all the only way she would keep any of her joy was to not be a grown-up mother, you know, not take responsibility properly for these children. And I just, I loved reading all about that and then, how he took that out really on his wife when she had 10 children and got fat and he no longer fancied her and he was the great Charles Dickens and she was the boring old Catherine Dickens. And so he falls in love with this 18-year-old Nellie Turnan who probably had two children by him as well and um, one of whom died and one of whom was probably adopted out. So we're, that's a terrible story too. And... This, the thesis in this book, and he looks at all his fiction and sort of unpacks it in terms of hints about what he calls Charles Dickens' divided self, where he was this incredible social activist and campaigner for justice and almost alone amongst the great novelists of his time had actually experienced poverty working in a blacking factory and father in a debtor's prison and all of that. So he had a real insight into that and and. and and he was genuinely um, exercised about poverty and um, opportunity and all that kind of thing. And the other side of him, which was an abusive husband and father, and probably, this book posits, a user of prostitutes, even at the same time as he was running a house to save women from prostitution. So there's this real split. And it was riveting. And it was very much about that society, but I thought it also said a lot about our society and also about a lot of men in power and who have prestigious reputations to the present day. Fascinating book. That's, that's the book that really had me. When I read a book in two days, I know I'm completely like hooked into it. Well, we'll certainly make sure we put the link through to that in the show notes so that if anyone else is a, interested in that, because it does sound like a fascinating read, Jane. Um, now, speaking of fascinating, whereabouts can people find you on social media or website? I know you love your Twitter. Is that the best place that people can find you? Pretty much. At Jane Caro is my Twitter handle, so I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have, I'm full up. I can't take any more friends on Facebook because I only allow you to have 5,000, but I have a public Facebook page you can follow, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Now, uh, Danny, who's the host of the Words and Nerds podcast, usually likes to end her interviews on the question, why do you write? Now, we've covered a few different aspects of why you like to write and the things you like about it, but is there any succinct way that you could define that question? Was the only thing I'm good at. I've never <laughs> had a for anything else. I mean, you know, I was, I've been good at words since I can remember. I can't add up. I'm not a strategic thinker. I'm not I can't administrate to save a life. Um, so not much choice, really. It was words or nothing. So that's what I'm doing. And 
because I was good at it to begin with, like so much else, I got better and better at it because I did it. I can't play music. I can't sing. I can dance a little bit. I can draw a little bit. But writing and speaking. So it isn't just writing. I speak. Um, I write. I, I, I broadcast, you know, anything that's to do with communication via words seems to be my thing. Well, we are delighted that we could have you on the Words and Nerds podcast today, Jane. It's been such a treat to speak with you. The Mother is out now with Alan Unwin in paperback, ebook, and it's going to be out with uh, audiobook as well. So thank you very much for being our guest. And thank you to everyone for tuning in today to the Words and Nerds podcast. I've been your host, Maya Linnell. And if you like this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends, leave a review or get in touch with Jane direct, possibly on Twitter rather than Facebook, to tell her what you loved about her new novel, The Mother. And if you want more book talk in your life, make sure you're subscribed to the Words and Nerds podcast wherever you get your podcast. Stay safe, stay well, and thanks again, Jane. The Words and Nerds Universe content is created by many talented people. We have the usual episodes and live streams hosted by me, Danny B. There are three regular spin-offs, the popular Burgers, Beers and Books hosted by Ben Hobson, the regular Takeover hosted by Nathan J. Phillips, and a different page hosted by Josie Layton. Check the Words and Nerds website for more details. We also have Takeover episodes where an author interviews another author and they take the conversation wherever they like. Throughout the year, we also have short spin-offs like the Summer Series Takeover, the NaNoWriMo Series, and the Publishing Insider Series. You can find all of these episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, Danny B Books, Words and Nerds Podcast. Stay safe and read more books.